This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by my book, Breaking Bad Faith, Exposing Myth and Violence in Popular Theology to Recover the Path of Peace. I'm Michael Camp. The book helps people break damaging beliefs that are based on myths. It exposes the big lie that God brings justice through retribution, punishment, imprisonment, the death penalty, lenient gun laws, American wars, final judgment, and eternal damnation. It's a religious crap detector. In case you're wondering, that is a theological term. The book uses sound history to reveal the love and restorative justice narratives of Jesus and the prophets. There are real-life stories, many outside Christianity, about people plotting peace rather than revenge to fight evil. Find it at Amazon.com. Hi, my name is Safi Kaskas, and I don't always drink a second cup of coffee, but when I do, I prefer to have a second cup with Keith. It's good to the last drop. Hello there, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and um, in this episode, I'm taking a little bit of a break. I know I was doing a series on biblical marriage. Um, I've also done a couple of interviews here and there, and I probably will do a few more of those interviews in the future uh, now and again, so that'll just be something we're going to incorporate into the new normal here at Second Cup with Keith. But for this episode, I wanted to break away from the marriage conversation um, and step away from the interviews and just do something that I've always thought this was really a fascinating thing. And it came up in conversation with some friends recently. I thought it would just make sense to, uh, to do an episode on it. So yeah, this should be fun. Um, I want to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. So in, um, the book of Acts, you, um, you have the story about the the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's usually held up. I mean, as I grew up, this story was always, if it was ever told, if it was anyone ever preached from this uh, passage of scripture about Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead um, because they they lied about, you know, uh, they sold a piece of property, kind of like a copycat, right? Someone else had also sold a property, but they, that person gave 100% of the of the sale of the property to the church. Ananias and Sapphira sold a property. They kept some of it and then gave some of the money, but then they, which was fine. That in itself was fine, but they lied about the fact that they, they, they didn't give all of the money. Um, and they just, they lied about that. They said that they did, but they really didn't. And apparently, um, as the story goes in the book of Acts, this was so egregious. This was something that the Holy Spirit couldn't stand and therefore, the Holy Spirit had to make a make a, an example of these two, and they were both struck dead. So that's the way the story reads at face value in the Book of Acts. I want to challenge some of that narrative in this episode, and maybe help us look at this: what's really going on with this story of Ananias and Sapphira, and to look at it from a completely different point of view. So, um, I guess to start off, I want to mention that there's an excellent podcast uh, that's out there. Um, it's a conversation between Brad Jerzak and Michael Harden from a while back. Actually, I think it's not just the two of them. I think it's a, there's several people in the conversation. And um, so they were raising this question about, you know, what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm just going to pull a couple of bullet points 
out of their conversation that I thought was really great, but then I want to add something totally different. So in their conversation, um, someone suggests that, that this story in the book of Acts about Adam, sorry, about Ananias and Sapphira correlates to the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis, which I never thought about that before. They said, you know, for example, like, you know, in Genesis, there's the creation. It's beautiful, idyllic kind of reality. Couldn't imagine anything better than, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden uh, prior to the whole incident with the the snake and the fruit. Um, and so it's easy to compare sort of that Genesis chapter one kind of reality with what's happening in Acts chapter two, right? Which is that everyone has everything in common. No one considers anything, uh, you know, belonging to themselves. If anybody has need, they share their property and give it to those in need. Um, so there's a specific mention about the property being sold, right? Uh, and having all things in common there when things were good. And uh, everyone loved everyone. It was a very love-based community. And what it, what the book of Acts says actually about that sort of pre- uh, sort of pre-Ananias and Sapphira situation is that everybody was filled with love. Every, everything was driven by love. But after the Ananias and Sapphira incident, there is a radical shift. And it even says that. It flat out says that everybody was filled with fear. So they go from being a love-based community before the Ananias and Sapphira incident to being a fear-based community after that. Um, there's, of course, a temptation with Adam and Eve in Genesis, with the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Ananias and Sapphira are also tempted, right? They're tempted to hold back the, the land, the money, sorry, sorry, to hold back the, the, the money from the sale of the property. And um, then there's a judgment, right? So in Genesis, it's the you shall surely die. And um, Ananias and Sapphira, they literally just drop dead um, on the spot for for giving into their temptation and again there's a pair there are parallels here there's this sort of beautiful perfect uh, idyllic kind of reality of this incredible communion between adam and eve and god in you know in genesis that's broken when they give into temptation and then death is introduced in the equation same thing happens in the book of acts there's this beautiful sort of heavenly um perfect kind of community based on love between the people and between God and the Holy Spirit. And then there's the temptation of Ananias and Sapphira. And then they're, they drop dead. And then there's a shift and everything goes from being about love to being about death or to being about fear. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, however, I would like to suggest sort of another element that's a little bit more radical when it comes to the story of Ananias and Sapphira and that has to do with who really killed them. So again, if we read the book of Acts at face value, it sort of seems to suggest that God did, that that God, uh, that the Spirit of God struck them dead. Although it really never actually says, and the Spirit killed them, or and the Spirit of God struck them dead. It doesn't say uh, anything like that. It just simply says, um, well, Peter says, this is this is the giveaway. Peter's the one who says, um, hey, uh, what you have done, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and, you know, 
you will be judged for that. And then it says they drop dead. So I would like to suggest in this podcast episode that the real reason Ananias and Sapphira died was because of Peter. I think Peter did it. I think Peter killed them. And I know that's radical. Um, but I think there's good reason to think so. Okay. So let's look again at the text. And if we turn and look at this, um, the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament and, and what happened there, what we notice is that after they die, it says that they were buried immediately, like on the spot. First, Ananias drops dead. And immediately, you know, people, the people standing there when he drops dead uh, around Peter, grab the body, run outside and bury it. And then the same thing happens with Sapphira. She drops dead um, and they bury her as well immediately. So here's the deal. According to historians, yes, it was common practice to bury dead bodies very soon after death, but not immediately, not when the body is still warm. Typically, especially in Jewish custom, custom, and again, keep in mind, they're all Jews. These are Jewish people who are followers of Jesus in, in the book of Acts. So um, there's, a, there's a whole process there, right, in the Jewish tradition, a very time-consuming process. So the body is stripped and bathed, anointed with oils and burial spices and things like this. Then the limbs are bound and wrapped in clothing. Right there's a shroud of some kind, or there's there's wraps around the body, um, and typically there's a burial procession that starts at the home of the deceased person, and usually they're surrounded by family members, and uh, there's a procession that leads from the home out to the city to the burial site or the tomb or wherever the person's going to be buried. So to me, um, you know, it's sort of a quote unquote, smoking gun, that Ananias drops dead and the disciples just skip over all of that. They go totally against Jewish tradition, um, the culture and the tradition of the day. Um, they just flat out grab him and bury him in the ground immediately. Um, so the, my, my question is, if something shady wasn't going on, then why didn't they follow custom and hold Ananias' body until his wife could come and help prepare his body for burial. Now, that, that would have been really the most normal thing to do. If someone drops dead in your presence, you hold the body, you contact the next family member, next of kin. In this case, his wife. It's her responsibility to make arrangements, to prepare the, his body for burial, to invite family members, to you know, have some kind of a service, and all that. But to bury Ananias' body without his wife's knowledge or permission or involvement in that process, that in itself is a radical thing. It just wasn't done. It certainly was not done in Jewish circles. It was not done in early Christian circles. But for some reason, it's very unique in the case of Ananias and with Sapphira. So they don't tell, they don't wait. They don't tell his wife. They don't even, as far as we know, they don't even prepare his body for burial. It seems like this happens very quickly. 
Um, and maybe one of the reasons they didn't wait to tell her about it was maybe they were just waiting for her to come in so they could kill her too, because that's exactly what happens. Um, I think the the other detail that's concerning or, you know, enough to raise some eyebrows and make us reconsider what what's really going on in in this passage is the fact that it's it seems to be that the men who carried out Ananias's body are the ones that buried him but according to first century jewish customs it's only the woman the wife who can prepare the body for burial and, and especially in, in Sapphira's case if the men buried Sapphira those men should not have been able to strip her body, clean her body, wrap her body, and bury her. They're strangers. They're not family members. Men don't do that. And men so certainly don't do that with a strange woman that's not someone related to them. But that just wasn't done, right? So what's going on here? Why were the men carrying out both of these bodies, digging a hole, you know, dropping them in the ground, and skipping all of these very important steps that should have been followed, that should have been necessary for preparing a body for burial. Why did they rush the process? That's what I'm saying. And I'm suggesting that it just seems pretty obvious that the only reason, the most obvious reason to rush that process, to go against Jewish custom and Christian custom in the first century, the only reason to rush that process would be because they didn't want anyone to investigate the details of the death. They wanted it to be just done. Like, we've already, they're already dead, they're buried, it's over, and now we're going to tell you a story. And I submit that that's kind of what happened. Um, no one heard about this story until Peter told them the story. Hey, where's Ananias and Sapphira? Peter says, well, let me tell you. And then he tells this story. Um, and I just want to say as well, if we're following the trajectory, right, we've, and Luke and, you know, Acts and Luke, um, written, we believe written by the same author. So let's read the gospel of Luke, but we have this beautiful picture of Jesus. He's loving, he's forgiving, uh, he's kind and compassionate, he's merciful. The Holy Spirit falls in the book of Acts. It falls on all flesh. Everyone has everything in common. Everyone loves everybody. Everyone's selling property to help each other, you know, make, make sure everybody has something to eat. No one considers anything, any property of their own, but it belongs to everybody. There's this incredible spirit of love. People are being added daily. People are coming into the church, you know, in, in, in record numbers because, um, because there's such a beautiful feeling of, of, of family and love and caring and sharing and compassion. And, and it's this beautiful, Beautiful, beautiful thing. So with all of that going on, does it make sense the Holy Spirit is going to kill somebody? Can we think of any other times the Holy Spirit killed someone? Can you think of a time that Jesus killed somebody? Can you imagine Jesus killing someone? Would Jesus have killed these people? Would Jesus have wanted these people to be killed? Or would there have been an opportunity for them to be forgiven, to be shown mercy? Would they have been given an opportunity to repent for not telling the truth? How did Jesus treat Peter, who denied him and betrayed him? You know, I mean, look, look for clues here. Is this consistent 
with the character of Christ? Is this consistent with the actions of the Holy Spirit? Up to this point, read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, and then come to the book of Acts and keep reading until you come to this to this point in the story, and it should make you stop and say, what? Wait a minute. Something is different. Something radically changed here. So, I mean, again, Jesus made a big deal about how he came to give us abundant life. Jesus specifically says that there is one who comes to, he says, steal and kill and destroy, and it's not him. It's not the Holy Spirit, right? That's the adversary. That's the enemy. If the argument is that God couldn't allow such sin to spread throughout the body of Christ to explain why he killed Ananias and Sapphira, then let me ask you this. Why doesn't, kill, why doesn't God kill pedophile priests? Why doesn't God kill greedy televangelists who swindle people out of their money and old people out of their social security checks? And would you expect God to do that? Would you want God to do that? I mean, maybe you do, but my point is that that would be inconsistent with the message of Jesus. It's inconsistent with the ministry of Jesus. Um, again, the point is, is often made that, well, you know, the Holy Spirit had to strike them dead for this, for this horrible, horrible thing, um, for keeping back some money when they should have given more money. And again, think about this. It's about money. It's about whether or not the church is going to get the money it's due or all the money it's promised. Is that the sort of thing you think God cares about? Like God is so angry that God didn't get the money that was promised him that he's going to kill some people. But other things he can forgive? Really? I don't know. Personally, I don't believe that this is consistent with the character of God as revealed to us by Jesus. It doesn't fit. So now let's shift over to who I think did it, which I think that was Peter. And let's take a look at Pete. What do we know about Peter? Well, Peter doesn't seem to have ever really embraced this idea of nonviolence. Um, when Jesus tells them in the book of Luke, um, you know, going by a sword, but he says, why does he say that? He says, so that the scriptures about me could be fulfilled, that I was numbered among the transgressors, the sinners, the murderers. Um, Peter's the one who cuts off the ear. Peter's the one that draws the sword and strikes somebody, probably intending to kill them. He probably just missed, right? He's not a good shot. Um, he cuts off this guy's ear. Probably going for the neck, probably going for the jugular. Uh, something happened and he hit the ear. At any rate, Peter's the one doing the violence in, in the Gospels with the sword. Um, Peter's the one that gets rebuked. Put away your sword, Peter. Right? So, um, not only does he use his sword to cut off the soldier's ear in Gethsemane, he also never teaches on the idea of loving our enemies or turning the other cheek or blessing those who curse us. Now, Jesus does. And by the way, Paul does. And even John does. If we look at the other New Testament writings, John repeats Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies and doing good to those who hurt us. Paul does that as well. But in Acts and in First and Second Peter, which again, I know that 
most scholars would say, and I would agree that Peter didn't write first and second Peter, but let's just say the, the New Testament books that are ascribed to Peter do not contain these teachings of enemy love or of nonviolence. So there are no examples. We have no examples from history or from New Testament texts of Peter ever embracing this central teaching of Jesus. And so it's, I think it's very likely that Peter still held on to this eye for an eye rule and not the love your enemy rule that Jesus introduced. Um, and I think it's just consistent with Peter's demonstrated character. Peter's violent. Peter cuts off the person's ear. Um, doesn't seem that Peter ever repeated those kinds of teachings of loving uh, and mercy and kindness and those things. Forgiveness. Um, here's the other question. What happened to the rest of the money? So here's something very curious, right? Peter knows that there was a larger amount of money um, that was received from the sale of the property than the church received. So it says, you know, as they both sort of, quote, fall at his feet dead, that phrase that they fell at his feet, um, it it's it's the same phrase that's used later to talk about verses that talk about offerings. But what did people do with their offerings? They took their offerings, they took their money, and they did what? They laid it at the apostles' feet to be distributed among the poor. So if the balance of the money that Ananias and Sapphira kept back was on their person when they dropped dead, I think there's a good chance that that money was counted as an offering because it fell at the apostles' feet. It fell at Peter's feet when he struck them dead. And in his mind, that money belonged to God and to the church or to Peter, um, even if he used it for good things. I'm not saying he used it and bought himself a bigger fishing boat. Um, but I'm saying in his mind, he took a very uh, harsh, you know, quick judgment, strike them dead kind of attitude. Which, by the way, you know, we, we can see that attitude as well in the disciples as well in, in the Gospels, right? Can we call down fire from heaven? Can we strike these people dead? You know, they, they were quick to want revenge and to want, you know, retribution. They wanted God to sort of strike people dead who went against them. And uh, Peter totally fits that. And then, of course, as I mentioned, you know, there's this thing about great fear filled the church after this happened. And so I think this is an example of sort of the fall of the church. As, as going back to what Brad Jerzak and Michael Harden and, and were talking about in their, in their podcast conversation, that in a way it could be looked at as the same way you would look at the fall of Adam and Eve with what happened in the garden, right, with the fruit. And, and they, they're giving into that temptation. I think you can look at sort of this, uh, this story as the fall of the church, but not, it's not Ananias and Sapphira. It's Peter. It's the apostles who struck their own brothers and sisters in Christ dead over money. That was the that was it. That was where they've made the misstep. That was the end of it. Because they went from being a group of people that were seen as loving, as Christ-like, as compassionate, and people were running, flocking to the Christian church, to the early Christian community. Why? Because of the love, because of the compassion, because of the radical mercy that was going on there. 
people were being, more people were being added daily. Every single day, more people were coming in. They were rushing in to be a part of this Jesus thing because it was, it was beautiful. There was so much love going on up until the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. And then what happens? They were, it says everyone was filled with fear. So we go from this spontaneous love and compassion for other people, selling property, sharing all they had so that there's no needy person among them to all of a sudden now being there, being great fear. Remember what, you know, in first John four eighteen, what does it say? Perfect love casts out fear. But I think the opposite is true. Fear casts out perfect love. And that's exactly what we see in the early church right here at this point in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Once this great fear fills the body of Christ, that spontaneous outpouring and flow of genuine love is squelched. In fact, I think it even makes a makes the point in this passage in Acts of saying that after it happened and after great fear uh, filled the people, it says that no one dared join them. So take those two bookends. We start off with a community that people were being more people were being added on a daily basis in the context of the outflowing, spontaneous outflowing of love and compassion and mercy and sharing and generosity. That's that's what we start with. And we end with great fear filled, filled the people and no one dared to join them. That is a radical, radical shift of tone. And it all happens because I believe Peter thought he had the authority of God to strike them dead. I think he, I think the power went to his head. I think he thought he had the right to kill them. He killed them one at a time. He quickly had them buried, going totally against tradition, um, ignoring the fact that, you know, the wife is supposed to prepare the husband's body for burial, that the family is supposed to have a processional from their house to the place of the, of the burial first, that there is a period of mourning and all of that. Uh, none of that happens. Peter skips over all of that. I think, and I think he does. He, I think that's what happened. He struck them dead. Uh, if they had the money on them, he took that extra money. He buried them quickly, and then after it was all over, then he told us a story. And and I think he's the one who wants us to to understand it as the spirit of God killed them. But I think really that goes against the character of the, of the spirit of God. I want to be a character witness for the Holy Spirit. I want to be the character witness for 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 God and for Jesus, and say. These are not things that Jesus or the Holy Spirit or Abba Father would have done for something as simple as a few extra coins. So I do think, though, um, it, it's in line with the character of Peter, uh, as evidenced what we've already talked about. And it's also, by the way, um, what's interesting is there's an early Christian teacher, John Chrysostom, um, and he actually also strongly suggests that Peter did kill them. So I'm going to read this. He has a homily, um, one of his homilies on Matthew, but he says, And Peter, too, wrought a twofold slaughter. Nevertheless, what he did was of the Spirit. So look at that. Chrysostom, in his homily, admits that, first first of all, Peter is the one who wrought a twofold slaughter. That's exactly what he says. Peter wrought a twofold slaughter. Wrought means he made it happen. He did it. Peter did a twofold slaughter. 
but that what he did was of the Spirit. So again, Peter wrought the slaughter, and what Peter did was of the Spirit, according to Chrysostom. So that more than strongly suggests that it was Peter and not the Holy Spirit that slaughtered them, because it's, it's what Peter did that was blessed by God, according to Chrysostom, and probably other church fathers. Um, but at the end of the day, it was Peter who did it. Now, later, Chrysostom also says this. This was an homily on the book of Acts. John Chrysostom says this, quote, Peter all but pleads for himself when at the point to inflict the punishment and at the same time gives a lesson to the rest. For because the act would seem exceedingly stern, therefore it is that he does so much in the, ca in the case. Uh, in this quote, Chrysostom argues that Peter sought to justify his own actions as he himself is, quote, at the point to inflict the punishment. So Peter is at the point to inflict the punishment. Again, Chrysostom, two different times is saying that Peter's the one who did it. Um, so, you know, Chrysostom lived around four, around the 400 AD timeframe, long after the books, uh, the events of, of, you know, what we see in Acts chapter five. But so, but even though Chrysostom was that far removed, I think it's possible that his opinion of what was going on there was based on probably some early Christian tradition about this passage that had been passed down to him, right? So what is the significance of saying that Ananias and Sapphira kept back certain proceeds from the sale? What's interesting is there's an Old Testament story uh, in Joshua 7, 1, about how Achan, it says that he, that he kept back loot from the plunder. And that because of that, the sins of Achan and, and Ananias and Sapphira are very similar. Uh, all of them were of the family of faith. And, and in, in both cases, their sins threatened to taint the entire community unless it was dealt with by means of an execution. And as an example to all the rest. Uh, famously, uh, evangelical Christian pastor John MacArthur affirms, as he says, quote, um, Ananias and Sapphira were nothing more than sinning saints feigning spirituality. Their offering was an affront to God's glory and their execution, God's work to keep the church pure. That's from his book, uh, Sins of the Saints, page 153. So I don't know what you think. But I, I reject this idea that the Holy Spirit killed Ananias and Sapphira. I just don't buy it. Um, I don't think that God would have killed them to teach them a lesson. Uh, I think if it had been left to the Holy Spirit, they would have been given an opportunity. They might have been confronted, as Jesus says, to go first privately to them. And then if they don't listen, to go with another brother in Christ. And then if they don't listen, take it to the whole church. And usually at that point, they will they will confess and that there could have been an opportunity for both of them, you know, weeping and with tears, supplication, have fallen on their knees and begged for forgiveness. And guess what? They would have been forgiven. They would not have been struck dead. This whole idea that the Holy Spirit would have struck Christians dead over something this minor is really ridiculous especially knowing that Christians have not been struck dead for much worse things. Much, much worse things. Um, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense.
Um, I, I guess uh, my feeling is that the Holy Spirit did not do that. I think Peter was someone at this stage who was given some amount of power. Jesus has gone. People are looking to him. Uh, and he probably even wanted it. He probably wanted to, you know, take some some authority in this situation. Um, I don't think Peter ever really was convinced that of Jesus' commands about loving our enemies or not using violence to to respond to our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and I think Peter took it upon himself to execute judgment against Ananias and Zephyra. And then he just he just said, "Well, God blessed it." And really, I'm wondering wondering if it's more likely that Peter just really didn't understand the gospel of peace the way that Paul and John and others did, because Paul and John and others they they seem to get it, they seem to preach it and live it. We know that Peter was very impulsive, that his that he had the pattern to act first and think later. We also know that Peter was very slow to understand that the gospel was also for the Gentiles. If we keep reading in the book of Acts, we see that it. Peter's like the last guy to figure this out. <laughs> that uh, you know, we see, um, we see. Was it Philip? Um, early on, Philip is going to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Not Peter, but Philip gets it that this gospel is not just for Jews, and he goes to the Samaritans. Um, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet. Peter's the last guy to get it. He needs this vision three times to suddenly realize, oh my gosh, everybody, the, the gospel is also for the Gentiles. They're like, well, duh, Peter, yes. Um, so he was kind of slow uh, to, to catch up with some of these ideas. He was very, very slow to let go of some of his old ways of thinking. And um, so I just think it's not that far-fetched to think that Peter uh lashed out that he got angry he thought he had the authority to do this um that he had god's blessing to act with this sort of authority he has the old testament precedent as i mentioned with Achan, of you know striking someone dead for holding back something uh in fact it's likely he maybe he did he 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 went to see like what does the bible say what is his what did the old covenant scriptures say well right here is an example when someone held something back what happened to them they were struck dead for the good of the community. And Peter seems to have thought that to keep everyone pure, that they deserve to die. And it would be an example to make sure no one else lied, as he says, lied to the Holy Spirit the same way. I don't think they deserve to die. And I don't think the Holy Spirit would have put, put them to death. Um, so, you know, again, nowhere else do we ever see the Spirit of God acting this way or any other Christian leader acting this way. Paul, quite often in his letters, will will uh, appeal to his authority as being based on his loving compassion and the love of Christ. Paul doesn't. In fact, Paul even in one of his letters makes a point of emphasizing um, that he will not lord it over. He won't use his, his, his title as apostle to command people to do what he wants them to do, right? He says, should I come at you with a stick? Well, it's a rhetorical question. And then you know the answer to the question by the rest of what he says, which is that, no, I refuse to. I'm not going to come at you with a stick, meaning I'm not going to physically beat you. I'm not going to even lord it over you with my authority, with my title. Instead, Paul appeals to them on the basis of love and the love of Christ. I think if Paul had been sitting, uh, 
you know, at the head of the church when this happened. And he found out about Ananias and Sapphira. I think he would have handled it in a way that brought compassion and mercy and opportunities for repentance and forgiveness and transformation. Um, but at any rate, I think, I think Peter overstepped his bounds in this situation. And I think because of this, and it tells us right here in this, in this passage in Acts, great fear spread throughout the church, not just the church, but even beyond the church, because it says no one dare join them. So even people outside the church, like all these people rushing into to find out what this Jesus thing is about when it's all about love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and generosity and sharing and giving, that stops immediately. They're like, oh, those guys? Oh, no, 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 no. They're killing people. They're killing their own people for holding back a couple of bucks from the offering. Like, really? So it really is a black mark on the on the the, the movement of Christ. A movement that's based on up to this point, a movement that's based on radical forgiveness and mercy, kindness, right? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do to the people that are nailing him to a cross. And now all of a sudden, people who are his own disciples keep back a few bucks and they're, they're struck dead? That just doesn't fit. So, um, you know, like I said, Philip, Paul, Stephen, John, um, they seem to have understood this idea of inclusion and nonviolent enemy love. Praying for those who persecute you, right? Stephen's praying for those who are stoning him to death, just like Jesus. Peter, probably not. <laughs> um, and so it may also explain why pretty much after this, it's John who is really seen as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter. And it could be that he was kind of demoted after this. I mean, he may have taken himself out. He might have said, guys, look, I shouldn't be doing this. You know, I can't, I don't want this. Or it could have been other people that just said, you know, Peter, look what you did. Now there's this great fear. People are afraid to take us seriously, um, to listen to our message. You know, why don't you have a seat, Peter? Um, because Peter's status in the early Christian community wanes kind of quickly right after this. And again, I just think Peter was slow to get it. I don't think, I think it took him a while to get it. I mean, who knows if he ever got it? I really don't know that. I don't, I mean, the only, the only thing we have in the book of Acts is his realization. And he has this beautiful statement. I think it's Acts 10 when he says, um, you know, the God has shown me that I should never call anyone unholy or unclean. And who knows, maybe if Peter had had that revelation, that Acts 10 moment first, and he could have held that in his heart and in his mind, that no one is unholy and no one is unclean, that God's love and mercy are for everybody, maybe he would have been able to take a second, take a beat, and say, what is the better thing here? Isn't it? Wouldn't it be better for everybody if they, on their own, admitted they made a mistake, that they confessed that, um, that they were shown mercy. Well, of course it would have been. So again, I, I just think it comes down to this. We're just left with two choices uh, to me. Um, either God really did kill these two people. He just couldn't handle it. You know, you, you, God's like, nope, you owe me the money. 
You told me you're going to give me twenty dollars. You gave me ten. You told me you're going to give me a thousand dollars. You gave me six hundred. And and for that reason, I'm going to kill you. And if if then if you're okay with that, okay. But I'm not. <laughs> uh, the other choice is that Peter did it. That Peter acted uh, impulsively, emotionally, um, irrationally, um, in an unchristlike way, and that Peter killed them. First, he killed Ananias. He quickly buried the body, going against all tradition. All, you know, there's just no there's no precedent for that. Why in the world? Why is he instantly buried? I think it's to cover it up. And then Sapphira, same thing. Peter even says, look, the feet of the men who carried out your husband and buried him are here to carry out you. And then she drops dead. I've got to believe it was Peter who did that. And that it was it was a fall of the church. It was a big mistake. Um, it, it gives us a picture. Uh, you know, it, it causes me to read the book of Acts really differently now. I think I used to read the book of Acts as a, as sort of like, wow, look at these apostles after Jesus. They're just doing one miracle after the other, one great thing after the other, man. Look at this, all this good stuff, right? And now, I, you know, especially with this passage, uh, I go back and read it again, and I'm like, you know, they made some mistakes. They did some things wrong. I, I think they, I, I think another example of the apostles getting it wrong is when there's a passage that talks about how um, they're growing and growing and they're like, you know, um, we, the apostles, this is again, Peter, James, John, um, and the other disciples, they're like, um, we're just spending too much time waiting on tables, feeding people, serving people. We're too busy for that. So let's elect these other guys to do the waiting on tables part so we can do the work of the gospel. I think that was another mistake. I think that was another failure of the early church because we have the specific example of Jesus, right? Taking off his outer tunic, um, which is essentially taking on the form of a slave, filling a basin with water, getting on his knees and performing the very dirty, unwanted job of washing his disciples' feet. Um, and then after he does that again, and who who dis, who who pushes back on that? Who who doesn't understand that? Who's the who's the disciple that says, "Oh no, no, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus"? It's Peter. Peter doesn't get it. And then Jesus has to explain to them, "Look, I am your master, yes, but notice, even though you, even though that's who I am, I'm your master, I'm your rabbi. Okay, but look look at me, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to set you an example." I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to serve you. And the greatest among you will be the servant. And so when Jesus gives them an example that radical, and then after he's gone, what they do is say, you know, we're too busy, we're too important to keep um, serving at tables, you know, basically being waiters, bringing, serving food to people. We have to be about the, the work, the busy, the important work, the, the, the quote-unquote spiritual work of, of preaching the gospel. And I think what they missed was that serving people food is the gospel. That is the message that Jesus gave you. 
What he told you was, the example he set for you was, was that, yes, you should be doing that. I also find it really fascinating that of the three people that they pick, I think it's Matthias, Stephen, and Philip. Right after that, Philip and Stephen have incredible testimonies. I don't, we don't really know what happens to Matthias, but um, Philip has this radical thing where he's teleported after um, baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. He gets to be the one to baptize the first Gentile convert, and that's Philip. And then he goes and preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. So radical miracle that Philip does. And then Stephen is martyred, just like Jesus. Jesus Stephen has a has the sort of the second Jesus testimony, right? And it's not Peter, not James, not John. It's Stephen. But who was Stephen? Well, before this, the only time we knew his name is that he's one of the ones elected to do what? To do the ministry of the gospel of waiting on tables. He's already walking in the shoes of Jesus, just like Philip, just like Jesus told them it was supposed to be about serving one another, humbling yourself, being a servant to one another. That is the message. That is your ministry. But they're too important for that. So Peter, James, and John, now let's get these other, let's get these other lesser people to wait on table so that we can do the greater work. What Peter goes on to do is not to baptize the first Gentile Ethiopian eunuch and to be teleported away uh, miraculously afterwards. What Peter goes on to do is not to confront the Pharisees and the Jewish people and be stoned to death and mirror the death of Jesus where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and Lord, do not count these sins against my brothers as they're stoning him to death. He has this Jesus moment. That's not Peter. What does Peter do? He strikes two brothers in Christ dead. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Ananias and Sapphira. He strikes them dead, buries the bodies quickly, and then claims it was the Spirit of God who did it. That's not a miracle. That's not a Christ-like thing. That's not a good thing. So I think these are two examples of, really, the fall of the early church. Sad that it's so quickly after Jesus. But I think that's one of the reasons it's in there. I think it's meant to not just be a bunch of stories of all the highs, all the wins, all the good things, all the great things, all, all the successes. I think it's also meant to be an example to us of like, hey, these are some really big mistakes we made. You should pay attention and don't make the same mistake. Sadly, though, we have we have taken these mistakes and said that they were right, right? Um, pastors of churches today, they don't want to be, you know, serving tables. Let's get someone to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, we'll hire someone to do that. Um, and, and they missed, and they think that they have scriptural precedents because they think that what's happening in the book of Acts is an example of, oh, this is a good thing. But I think it's a bad thing. And I think, at least to me. And then this whole thing with Ananias and Sapphira, like, oh, no, you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit um, by saying you're going to give us a thousand dollars and you actually only gave us seven hundred dollars and you kept that money back and God's going to strike you dead. No, that's that's not a prescriptive verse. I think that is a a verse that lets us know not what God did, but what Peter did. And it was a huge mistake. And it shifted things completely the other direction. To go from a community that's all about love where people are 
sharing all things in common, and people are being added daily to the church to whiplash around and make it about people are terrified. No one dares to join that group of people, the Jesus community. Why? Because they're afraid. And why are they afraid? Because I believe Peter struck down two people. Peter killed two people. And he thinks that God blessed it. That's my opinion. Anyway, uh, your mileage may vary, as I sometimes say. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, I really do appreciate your listening and your support. Um, I want to say I have a book coming up. Um, it, it's a book based on this podcast. The book is called Second Cup with Keith. Um, I'm taking like, I think the first 32, 33, uh, episodes of the podcast and each chapter will be looking at one of those episodes. So if you like this podcast and you wish, man, I wish I just had a way to reference these. I could just flip open the book and find the chapter where Keith talks about what all the things I talk about. And, um, and you'd have it all right there. It's like a nice little reference guide, uh, of some of the kind of things I talk about on this podcast. Uh, that's coming up soon from choir publishing. And I believe, I believe it's coming up sometime either in November. I think it's in November. So November, 2023. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, I will also go ahead and say too, my son, David has a brand new novel called there once were orange groves. Uh, check it out. It's on Amazon. It's a great book. Um, it's, it's really good. I know I'm biased, but then I'm not biased because we've had so many great endorsement quotes from other authors. Uh, so many great reader reviews from people that just genuinely loved it. It's, it's really a great book. I really recommend it. So go and check that out too. And um, yeah, if you want to follow me on, on my blog, that's keithjobs.com. That's where I blog on Patheos. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for uh, supporting this podcast. If you like this episode, please like it and share it um, with someone, share it on social media, yeah, share it with your friends, things like that. And uh, let me know what you think. I would love to hear feedback from you. If you have an idea for an upcoming episode, something you'd like me to talk about on the podcast, or maybe someone you'd like me to interview, because since I'm doing interviews now, let me know. Um, happy to do that. Thank you so much again. Uh, we'll see you next time on Second Cup with Keith. Thanks.